This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I want to relate today is Chaye uh, Sarah. Chaye Sarah is a topic that deals with death. It's one of the uh, topics in the Torah deals with, one of the parashiyot deals with death. And the heading is very strange. Why? The title is Chaye Sarah, the lives of Sarah. It's in the plural. So it's talking about the death of Sarah. And yet the title is the lives of Sarah. Sarah had lives, not a life, but a lives. It's interesting because the word in Hebrew for life is Chayim. Chayim is in the plural. So Chay is life. Chayim is in the plural. When we talk about life, when Jews talk about life, we talk about the plural. Why is that? And the answer is because Jews have at least two lives. What are the two lives? This world and the next world. And this, this parasha starts off with Chaye Sarah. Why? Sarah may have died in this world, in one in a sense, but in, in another sense, she's still alive in this world because we, our children, are still alive and we're still following in her path that she would want us to follow. So therefore, she's very much alive in this world as well. And number two is she's alive in the next world. So Sarah, we all have many lives. We have a life in continuity, our deeds will live on in this world, our memory will live on in this world, and we'll live on in the next world, ourselves. So we have many lives. We're, we're blessed. We have many lives. You know, the beautiful story it says about the Baba Cherebi, where the communists caught him, and he was teaching Torah, and it's, it was forbidden to teach Torah, and they put a gun to his head. And usually when he put a gun to someone's head, they start trembling. And the Baba Cherebi never trembled. So they asked him, why aren't you scared? He says, you have one bullet and I have two lives. So very important to remember, we see we're surrounded with death and dying and this war and terrible things happening around us. We have to remember, there's another dimension. There's a world above this world. And eventually we'll all meet again, you know, all the relatives, all the friends, whoever, whoever deserves it will meet again in a better world. And then there's another life, which is another life in this world. With, uh, Ramban says, is going to be Olamaba. So there's a few worlds we're going to live on. We don't really realize that the lives of Sarah. And we're, we, this is a very important idea that, that really we need today. We need to realize when bad things are happening, this is not the only world. It's not, not the only world of our existence. And when people die, they're actually being reborn. They're actually being reborn in another world. And that's why Judaism, we celebrate yard sites. Now, it's interesting. Why do we celebrate yard sites? Most people everywhere around the world celebrate birthdays. Jews, we're very morbid. What do we do? We celebrate yard sites. We don't really celebrate. We do have a parties. Yeah, we eat Tehillim and there's food. It's funny, we're very big into food on yard sites and a lot of food. And uh, so we celebrate death in a sense. In a sense, we celebrate. Why? Because death is not the end. Death is a new beginning. And that's why we meet Abraham Avin this week's parasha. A whole chapter is devoted to buying a burial site for Sarah. Why is a burial site so important? It's interesting because Noah passed away. Sarah says he was 950 years old and he passed away. But with Sarah, it's like Abraham Avin makes a big thing. It's not just she passed away and that's the end. I got to find a burial site suitable for Sarah. In other words, this is, I'm celebrating immortality of the soul. This burial site is going to be the entrance to a new world, and it is. Hebron is, the word Hebron comes from the word Chibur, 
which is, the rabbis tell us, a connection between this world and the next world. It's one of the wormholes. He said Yushalayim, last week he talked about Yushalayim as being a connector between this world and the next world, and the world above. And Hebron is also, it's a Hebrew, it's one of the wormholes, the connections between this world and the next world. How do we know? Because it says in the procedure in the Bede Mikdash, the Kohen would climb the roof of the Bede Mikdash to see when is the earliest dawn. When can he see the sun? Because that's when the service of the Bede Mikdash, everything started when they could see the sunrise and uh, dawn. And uh, he, would, he would not just see the sun, he would, he would ask him, can you see all the way to Hebron? It was very important. The service of the Bede Mikdash could not start until they could see Hebron. Why? To link themselves to the forefathers, link themselves to another wormhole, another connection to the, to the upper worlds. So Israel, Israel has two connectors at least to the upper worlds. And one is in Yushalayim and the Bede Mikdash. And number two is in Hebron. Sadeh Machpelah is also a connector, a very big connector to the next world. But that's why it's interesting because the Torah mentions always that our forefathers put memorials by the graves. And this became a Jewish law. And uh, we put memorials on the grave to remind people there was a, a person who lived in this world and about their life and their deeds and motivate people to follow them. And then also to show this is a stepping stone to the next world. Our, our burial sites, our stepping stones where our souls go up to the next world. And that's a very, very important fundamental Jewish belief and something that serves us well right now. We're in trouble with death and dying. We have to remember this. This is not the end. This is not the end of life. Life does not end with death. Life, in a sense, starts. Immortal life, immortality starts with our burial, that the soul comes out. In fact, that's, that's one of the reasons why in Jewish law, it's very important to bury someone straight away, not to leave a body overnight. It's very, very important, critical that then the, the person's life can continue in the next world. As soon as they're buried, they can continue the process in the next world. If they're not buried, they can't continue the process. And that's why the Torah says, talking about a murderer, you're meant to hang up the body after he's uh, been killed, and it says take down his body straight away before dark. And that's the reason why everyone gets a chance, everyone has to go be buried, and this, that's the entrance to the next world. The entrance to the next world is after death. So interesting. So why does the Torah, question number one, why does the Torah spend a whole chapter on the death of Sarah? And the burial of Sarah. Why does it spend the whole chapter on the death of Sarah? And the purchase of the cave of Machpelah, Abraham going backwards and forwards with the Nechet, purchasing the cave of Machpelah. Until now, death was never a big thing in the Torah. All of Noah's days was 950 years and he died. That's it. Noah, the big Sadiq, Noah was a Sadiq, saved the world after the flood. He didn't save the world, he saved his family at least. He saved us and the future generations. And yet the Torah just dismisses, he died, and that's it, 950 years old. And the answer, one of the answers is what Abraham Avinu says. Abraham Avinu says to Benechet, Ger betoshav anochi imachem. Now this is a very strange dichotomy. Ger, I'm a, I'm a sojourner and a toshav. I'm also a dweller among you. I'm a sojourner and a dweller. Now what does that mean? Well, it happened to me when I got my green card when I went to America, United States, I got a green card. And what does it say on the green card? It says... A resident alien. A resident alien. A person becomes a resident alien. In the, and uh, this is what Abraham Bidu said to Benichet. I am a resident alien in this country. In Israel, I am a resident alien. Why? Because this land has not been given to me yet. It will be given to my descendants. Right now, I'm a resident alien. 
So, but please, if you don't treat me properly, I will exert my rights as a resident. I will take the land from by force because Hashem is going to give me the land. So he's threatening, but that's one of the answers to this question. Why does the Torah spend such a time on this burial cave for Sarah to tell us all of us in this world are resident aliens? We're all resident aliens. You know, there's a story of Rabbi Riskin. It says he uh, he had in his shul uh, a professor, a cancer doctor, professor, uh, you know, cancer doctor. And uh, he's, that conductor obviously was very busy all day in cancer wards. And in those days, you know, cancer was pretty much uh, a death sentence. Uh, today, thank God for the drugs they have today. Thank God for the treatments they have today. Thank God. Anyway, so he asked the doctor, he said, I don't understand. How can you, you know, walk around with a smiling face, you know, when you're, you're around with death and dying all day long? So the doctor turned to him and said, Rabbi, he says, we're all dying. All of us are dying. We just don't know when it's going to happen. But as soon as a person is born, as Dr. Abudi says, a person is born with expiration dates. We're all born with expiration dates. We're all, we're all dying. This whole world is a, a world of, we think of life, but everyone who's alive is eventually going to go. So it's a world we don't know where we're going to go. We don't know what we're, what we're going to do, how we're going to go. But we've got to remember this world is temporary. It's a temporary world. We're resident aliens. That's what Abraham Vida says. To Benichet, we are all resident aliens, and he meant that on a few levels. One of the levels he meant it on was our physical bodies here are resident aliens in this world. Um, we have to go one day. One day we're going to leave this world, and therefore, you know, a lot of people think this world is mine, my house is mine, my land is mine, and that's why Torah reminds us we have a law called Shemitah. Every seven years, the land rests fallow, does not belong to you. Anyone can come in and take the fruit from your fields. So we have these laws to remind us that this world is temporary. This is a temporary world. Shabbat also is a reminder in a sense that uh, our daily business, which we take for granted and we think it's fixed, is not permanent. Shabbat is permanent. Shabbat is me'en olam is a hint to us of the coming world. Bezrat Hashem will all be worthy of living a long life in this world and also getting a long life in the next world as well, immortality. Bezrat Hashem, this is what we all want. We all want to be immortal, a lot of people think the mortality is in this world. They spend money trying to stay young, dye their hair and look good and faceless and this and that. You know what? This world is however much a person has. It's never enough. Even Adam Rishon lived 930 years and he wants the years. The rabbi say, Midrash says he gave 70 years of his life to David Amelech. When he got to 930 years, he wanted them back. He wanted 70 years back. So it's never long enough. However long it is, it's never long enough. And we have to realize that this world is temporary. The body is transient. And this is the world of senses. Uh, we're resident aliens in this world. That's Maybe that's what Abraham Avinu meant. And the chapter ends with the declaration of the cave became the uncontested property of Abraham. And that's a precursor to the Mishnah Be'kavot that says this world is a corridor to the next world. In other words, the cave of Machpelah became the corridor between this world and the next world. On the grave site, Abraham is creating an eternal monument which stands for an existence beyond the bodies. That was the Kepa Machpelah is a reminder that there's an existence that's the entrance to another world. The grave is an entrance to another world. The grave is a mausoleum in a sense to the next life.
which is beyond our physical existence. All the Jewish customs of death and mourning are derived from this story. The idea of eulogies after death, after burial in the ground, is all based on the story, the mourning period, that there is an eternity, a life of the spirit, which if properly understand and prepared for in this world guarantees eternal life in the world to come. In secular culture, people are remembered by their birthdays, the date they come into this world. For Jews, the day a person leaves this temporary world is much more significant than the day a soul leaves eternity for its temporary abode in this body. The kind of life one leaves in this world determines their portion in the eternal world. Once a person accepts this concept, everything takes on a different picture. You know, Rambam is you know, very, very rational, and he stresses the idea of the duty to make this world a better place. Nevertheless, the laws of repentance, laws of teshuva, the Rambam brings down, he talks about the eternity of the soul. The most significant endeavor with the establishment of an abiding relationship with one's spirit and God is one's eternity. So a person, when he does mitzvot, is establishing a connection with Hashem. The establishment of connections with Hashem, Hashem is eternal. When a person establishes a connection with Hashem through learning Torah, through doing mitzvot, through prayer, then they can, they can guarantee themselves eternal life because Hashem is eternal. So by doing good deeds, by doing mitzvot, by doing chesed, we're attaching ourselves to the master of eternity, Hashem. Hashem is the master of eternity. And by attaching ourselves to Hashem, we obtain eternity. That is the, that is the secret. The secret to eternity is attaching ourselves to the eternal one. Hashem is the eternal one. He was, he is, and will be, he's above time, the eternal one. So it's interesting because the, the rabbis say, The righteous, even when they're dead, are called alive. And that's where the custom of going to people's graves to pray came from. That dead people can transmit our messages. The idea is not to pray to the dead, but to pray to the Hashem. In the merit of the dead person, their merit, even though they're dead, their merits are standing for them in the sense they're alive. So Sadiqim, even though they're dead, are alive. And Rishaim, even when they're alive, are dead. So in a sense, well, why, what is death? Death is being removed from God. Karet, the worst punishment we have in our Torah is Karet, which is the cutting off of the soul. What does that mean? That is, the person is cut off from its spiritual source. A person who is cut off from God is dead, even though he's alive. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. So there's such a thing as a walking dead. A lot of people are walking dead people. You know, that's what the rabbi, the Israelis today said about Sinwar and all his cohorts. They're walking dead men. They're walking dead men. And that, the truth is that they are. Why? Because spiritually they're dead. Murderers are spiritually dead anyway. They're walking dead men. Murderers, torturers, uh, horrible things they did. They're walking dead men on two levels. Number one is because the Israelis will kill them, hunt them down and kill them. And number two is because they really are dead. They're spiritually removed from God, eternal life, and therefore they are dead. The Ramchal asks, why would we put into this physical world? And he answers to this famous Kabbalistic answer, that is, we're put here to enjoy it. Hashem created this world for us to enjoy it. The only problem is we have to remember Physical enjoyment is vanity. As King Solomon says in Kohelet, Hevel Habalim, Mark Kohelet, everything is vanity. All physical enjoyment is vanity. How much you eat, 
and the next day you're hungry again, right? The person eats steak, whatever it is, and he's hungry again. Whatever a person eats, they're hungry again. It's vanity. It doesn't last. It's not lasting. The only pleasure that's really lasting is spiritual pleasure. Shabbat, man, olam You know, it's amazing. Uh, we have to imagine a person who's learning Torah. You know, when I teach uh, some of the kids, some of the time they tell me, I don't believe the time passed so fast. Why is the time passing so fast? And the answer is because you're on a spiritual high. When you are on a spiritual high, you're attached to Hashem who's above time. Time just passes. When you're really involved in something spiritual, time just passes. So we have to enjoy the world, but we have to remember. The highest level of enjoyment is spiritual enjoyment. The highest level of enjoyment is spiritual enjoyment, even in this physical world. Abraham establishes a Jewish burial plot in order to teach us. There is a life of the spirit which defies and transcends death. That is why it's called Haye Sarah, the lives of Sarah. Yes, we're celebrating the fact that she lived in this world. She loved good deeds. We're her children. We, she lives on in us. And also is celebrating the fact that she is now in eternal life. She is our mother, and we can pray to God, remember our mothers and our fathers, and that trans death, transcends death. That is why it's called Hayesara. Even after she is death, she lives. So that is a very important idea, the idea of eternity of the soul. We are Gerit or Shabbat, as Abraham says, we are living in this world temporarily, and really our real mission is the next world. Of the most, one of the most tragic elements of life. And this is number two. Why is death stressed at this week's parasha? Number two is death, unfortunately, sometimes reminds a person of purpose in this world. Sometimes without death, a person would forget what we're doing here. Would forget that we're limited in time. That's the that's trouble. The person says, you know, I'm young. I'm going to live for 100 years, 200 years. Who knows how long? I have plenty of time. I can play around, do whatever I want, and that's it. So death is a reminder. Life is short. Life is fleeting, especially when we see people killed in the young ages. Unfortunately, that happened recently, and uh, young people were killed. Twenties, eighteen, young babies were killed, and then a person going to realize what is life all about? What is life all about? So this is like a slap in the face. Death is a slap in the face to living. What is life all about? What are your main purpose in life? What do you have to achieve in your life? And that's what we see in the parasha. Straight after Sarah dies, what does Abraham Avinu besides buying the burial plot? Straight after, what does he do? He finds a wife for the next generation. In other words, Abraham Avinu is reminded that, you know, he nearly sacrificed his son Yitzhak. What would have happened? Yitzhak would have died, no children, no progeny. <laughs> Sarah dies, straight away, galvanizes Abraham. Find a wife for your son, get him married. Make sure there's a progeny. Make sure there's a next generation. This is also one of the things we learned from the events in the last week. What is our uh, answer to these events? And the answer is continuity. Our answer to Holocaust is continuity. Our answer to death is ensure our continuity. Ensure Jewish continuity through marriage, through children, through learning Torah. This is the ways we ensure our continuity. This is what Abraham Vida does. After his wife is buried, Straight away he goes and tells his servant, we're going to talk about Eliezer, find a wife for my son Yitzchak. Go and find a wife. And there's an interesting story. It's maybe a legend about Alfred Nobel. Why did Alfred Nobel make the Nobel Prizes? Number one is he never got married. He never had any children. As far as we know, he never had any children. Number two, it says his brother Ludwig died. 
and some newspaper reporter made some mistake and wrote an obituary for Alfred Nobel. And he's on the train reading the obit- his own obituary. And the obituary was, he was the inventor, one of the inventors of um, one of the massive explosives, uh, which he used for civil purposes, not for military purposes. But the, in the obituary, they blamed him because there was, apparently there was some kind of accident in his factory and people died in the, in the explosion. And he, they said he would be remembered for these explosions and the killing of people. So when he read that obituary, he woke him up. He says, you know, I got to do something good. This is how they can remember me when I die. I got to do something with my life and make sure they remember me in a good way. And that's where the Nobel Prize is. That's where he dedicated Nobel Prizes. Anyway, that's an interesting story that faced with death or faced with news of one's own death, it could motivate us. And faced with death of our relatives, it motivate us to do, achieve more. And that was galvanized Abraham Avinu. This is number two. Why does the Torah pay so much attention to the death of Sarah? And the answer is because death is important in a way that it should galvanize the living. Life is not uh, forever. The soul is forever, not physical life. Physical life is not forever. We need to achieve in this world and uh, guarantee our continuity in this world. No sooner is Sarah buried than Abraham realizes the critical importance of Yitzhak's marriage, the continuation of the family. Yitzhak's near death from the back, backlogs of death. He came to appreciate the value of life. So from his, his son's near death, from his wife's death, Abraham Avinu says now life is important. I got to get Yitzhak married. I got to get him married. And this is a very important facet of Jewish life. Marriage, children, a very important facet of Jewish life, more important than ever before. Why this guarantees continuity, which we need more than ever before. Only when we recognize our unique destiny will we have anything of value to share with the world at large. We have to recognize our destiny. We have to continue the continuity of Judaism, the appreciation of life. And that's something which we should get out of this parasha, continuity. Um, focusing on continuity, that's what the Abraham Avinu does after his wife dies. So, number three is why does the Torah focus on the death of Sarah? The answer is not so much for the death of Sarah, but also for the purchase of the cave. The cave of Machpelah, this was a protracted process of negotiation. What is so important? The Malbim asks, Malbim says, number one, the Midrash says this is one of the three places that Jews bought land in Israel. Abraham buys Machpelah. He buys a part of Hebron, which today is, you know, again, contested. We need soldiers over there guarding the site. The Jews moved back to Hebron, Baruch Hashem, after the 67 war. There was a large community in Hebron. People don't realize uh, the yeshiva of Slobodka moved to Hebron. It became, today is known as the Hebron yeshiva. And unfortunately, there was a pogrom in 1929 in Hebron. The Jews, moved, the British moved the Jews out for their own safety. The, Jews, the British, you know, very obligingly moved all the Jews out of Hebron. They ensured that Hebron would be Jew-free. Until 1967, Hebron was Jew-free, even though there's a large community. How do we know? Just go and see the Jewish cemetery of Hebron, and you'll see it goes back hundreds of years, not thousands of years. And obviously it does go back thousands of years because when you go to the site of Machpelah, you will see who built that beautiful building on Machpelah. And the answer is Herod, the King Herod. And it's the same stones that he put in the Kotel, the same frame stones, the one stones, you know, with the frames around them. You'll see in the Kotel are the same stones built into 
the cave of Machpelah, which is a site of where Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov, and their wives were buried. So interesting, uh, that's number one, is the Midrash says, three places we bought in, in Israel. Abraham Avinu buys Hebron, Machpelah, the Temple Mount was bought by David HaMelech. It says he bought it from Aravana HaHeti. And Shechem was bought by Yaakov Avinu, which we're going to read in the coming parashiot. Yaakov Avinu buys Shechem. Interesting, the three most contested sites today are the sites that our forefathers bought with their own money. This is documented in the Torah. So Abraham buys Machpelah, contested site of Hebron. Arabs claim as a mosque. And every Friday, no Jews allowed in. Why? Because it's used as a mosque. Till today, it's used as a mosque. On every Friday, it's closed to Jews. And uh, sometimes it's closed other days as well during Ramadan. And you got to make sure you, you can't, you're going to get in. You know. A Jew goes to Machpelah on a Friday. I did once. And uh, there's no entrance. So Jews cannot go in. Uh, Nablus. Can you imagine Nablus? So one of the hotbeds of uh, terrorism in the West Bank. And that's uh, Nablus. And uh, that's something, a site that Yaakov you know, bought with his own money, a site where Yosef HaTzadik is buried. And it's, it's uh, Hebron was, by the way, was also the uh, capital city of the tribe of Judah. And that's where David Amalek says was king for seven years before he was king in Jerusalem. So seven years of David Amalek was king of Hebron. Our roots to Hebron go back very far. And Arustanablus Shechem go back very far. Yosef was buried there. There was a Jewish community there for a long time. And uh, our roots go back to the Temple Mount, where we built two temples over there, despite all the flagrant violations there was a demolishing under the underground and all the all the remnants of archaeological remnants of these temples. So we have bought three sites. Our forefathers bought three sites, and they're the most contested. Okay, so that's a very important. Why is this Torah? You know, why does it go into great details around video bargaining for the site? Which the answer is a very important site. Number two, Ibn Ezra says to make known the preeminence of the land of Israel over all other lands, both for the living and for the dead. That it's ideal to be buried in the land of Israel. No other land has the, the power to atone for a person who's buried in the land. The land of Israel atones for a person who's buried in the land of Israel. Hence, a lot of people want to be buried in Israel even if they live abroad. And at one time, the joke was there were more people moving to Israel dead than alive, you know, from America. You know, a thousand people a year coming to Israel in caskets. And I don't know how many now, but there's much less than who's coming alive. Baruch Hashem, we're seeing uh, Kibbutz Galiot is happening even around us, even while, while there's a war on. Baruch Hashem, Kibbutz Galiot is happening. We have to remember that all the time. Uh, we're living in an age where, you know, we see all these downs. We have to also see the ups. We have to see the brightness. This is also a very important idea. We should not get depressed because we have to see also the positives happening around us. And the positives is Israel is flourishing. There's Radashem straight after this war. It will go back to being flourishing. Right now it says the Israelis are paying you know, $650 million a week just to keep the army going because the you know people are not working. The economy is losing $650 million a week. So Bezrat Hashem, Hashem will bless us with lots of shefa. We'll win this war quickly. Uh, Israeli soldiers will be safe. Our people will be safe. The hostages will be freed. Bezrat Hashem. And we'll go back to being a thriving oasis in the Middle East. Bezrat Hashem. So Ibn Ezra says that's one of the reasons why this Torah stresses in this week's parasha 
that uh, why is it stressed in this week's parasha, the buying of this Hebron? And the answer is to make known the preeminence of Israel over all the other lands, both for the living and for the dead. That's the Ibn Ezra. Number three, why the protracted negotiation for the cave of Ramban says, this is the beginning of the inheritance of Israel. And to let us know the burial site of our forefathers. We are rooted in this land. We can go anytime we want to the burial of our forefathers. They're buried here. That's a 30, 30, what is it, 3,700 years ago or more. So Avram Vino was, uh, was born in 1948 in Jewish Canada. So it's like 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years, our forefathers were buried in this land. 4,000 years of history in this land. So it's the beginning of our inheritance of Israel. And that's our burial place. This is our site where our forefathers were buried. Number four, it was a test for Abraham Avinu. God promises him the land of Israel, and here he has to bargain and buy very expensively 400 silver coins, big, large silver coins, to bury his wife. So he passed this test. Baruch Hashem passed this test with flying colors. And then we have the next episode in the parasha is telling us a very interesting idea. Three women. The story of three women. The first section starts off with the burial of Sarah. The second section tells us there was a big void. There was a big void in uh, Yitzhak's life. His mother passed away. And the second section of the parasha deals with filling the void of Yitzhak's life, the finding of Rivka, which we're going to talk about. The finding of Rivka, she, she fills the void of Rama in Yitzhak's life. It says, now we found another, a true love. Baruch Hashem, Yitzhak found a true love. In fact, the only relationship of man and wife, which there's love mentioned first in the Torah, the first time it's mentioned love in the Torah is love between Yitzhak and Rivka. Beautiful. We don't really think of Yitzhak as being the lover, right? But he was the first one to always say the word Ahava. Uh, Yitzhak loved his wife, so Rivka, and she loved him. Baruch Hashem. It was love between them. He found fulfillment when he found his wife after the death of his mother. We find that Abraham Avinu also is now missing a wife. What does he do? So the Torah tells us in this week's parasha. Yitzhak finds a wife, and Avram finds a second wife. Who's the second wife? Keturah. Rashi says, this was Hagar who came back. She never found another husband. And she came back to Abraham, and she's now called Keturah. Why? Because her deeds were like Keturah. Her deeds were sweet-smelling. She became a big sedeket, and she marries Abraham Avinu. So the structure presents a very clear message. Sarah's death leaves a vacuum on two levels. A vacuum, Abraham is left without a wife. We get Keturah. Am Yisrael is left without a matriarch, and we get Rivka. So it's interesting. Sarah is dead. Our patriarch's wife is dead. We have no matriarch. We get a new matriarch. Rivka is our new matriarch. Uh, so the first vacuum is filled by Keturah. That she is now the wife of Hamavidu. He has a new wife, and uh, Yitzhak has a wife. So we have a matriarch. So Baruch Hashem, the two voids were filled. And the proof of the second point is a conversation between Abraham and Eliezer. Abraham and Eliezer. Abraham tells Eliezer, the woman destined to be Yitzhak's wife would be tested as to her willingness to leave her birthplace. It's interesting. One of the tests for Rivka was, is she going to leave Haran and come to Eretz Israel? So she is going on a journey to an unknown land. It's like she also has to fulfill Lech Lecha. Think about it. Abraham really had to leave Haran and come to Eretz Israel. Sarah came to Eretz Yisrael from Haran, and now Rivka has to come 
leave her land of Haran and go to this strange land, Israel. And if she had that faith to make that leap, to move to an unknown place, she would be a worthy successor of Sarah. So it's interesting, she earned it. She earned the rights to be a worthy successor of, of Sarah. And why, how? She also left Haran and came to Eretz Israel. So, so that's the, another very important part of this parasha is the importance of not marrying out of the fold. The importance of not marrying out of the fold. This is the second major point the parasha is making. The test of Abraham activities, the last of his activities was to find a wife for Yitzhak. We don't find Abraham anymore. This is it. This is the last of his activities. Besides marrying Keturah, is finding a wife for his son Yitzhak. He's got to pass the baton down to the next generation. Ababinel asks, "Why did Abraham Abraham command Eliezer not to take a wife from the Canaanites?" It's one of the things Abraham says. Eliezer, swear to me, you will not take a wife from my son Yitzhak from the Canaanites. Even though they're right there, they're right there, they're all there. All the Canaanites are there. There's good Canaanites as well. Which Abraham Avinu made a breed, a covenant with Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, three Sadiqim who were Kananim. Why? What's wrong? Why did he tell Eliezer to break only a wife from his relatives? So there's a couple of answers to this question. The Midrash says that Abraham Avinu's intent was first let me convert my own family. This important, this is an important idea that Ishayah one of you also stresses. Don't hide from your own flesh and blood. If you want to do a mitzvah, first come, your family comes first. This is brought down in the Shulchan Aruch, in the laws of tzedakah. If you want to give tzedakah, who do you give tzedakah to first? The parents, your children, your relatives. That's the order of tzedakah. Sometimes we forget that there's people we need to support within our own families. Tzedakah, charity starts at home. Chesed starts at home as well. Husband has to do chesed. Start off with chesed at home. Put the dishes in the dishwasher, wash some dishes, clean the floor. Chesed starts at home. Charity starts at home. You want to find a wife for your son. In the good old days, the first step is find one of your relatives. Keep it in the family. Keep your possessions in the family. Uh, keep your family in your family. You know, today we don't advocate it because it leads to inbreeding and uh, all sorts of problems. Who knows what? And it's very hard to marry your relatives. But uh, it was recommended in highly in those days, 2,000 years ago, the Gabbana says, best to marry your own family. Uh, and uh, this is Abraham. You see in action, let me do Kiruv in my own family first. Kiruv starts in your own family. If you have relatives, cousins, nieces, nephews who are far away, bring them back first. Siblings, uh, children even, those are the first people you have to work on. Sometimes you can't work on them directly, you have to work on them indirectly. But we have to. We have to do our, our mission is to bring our own families first. Tzedakah starts at home. Torah starts at home. Mitzvot start with our own relatives, and we see that with Abraham Avinu. If I have someone to marry my son, first priority is my own relatives. I want to bring someone from my own relatives to come and marry Yitzhak and adopt my customs, adopt my ways. I want. To, I want it to be ethical monotheists. That's the point. I want my relatives to be ethical monotheists. Right now, they are idolaters, worshipping idols in Haran, which is what uh, Abraham's relatives, his uh, brother Haran has uh, had a son called, called Betuel. Uh, sorry, Nahor had a son, Betuel, and they're all idol worshippers. Nahor, Betuel, 
all kinds of worshipers. So the first priority is let's try and bring someone back from that family and try and reintroduce them to ethical monotheism. So that's number, number the second answer. So the first answer was not from the Canaan. Why? I want to marry them into my relatives. So the question then becomes why are your relatives better? The answer is marry your relatives. That's Sadaqah to your own family. Number three, Rambam says, Ramban, Nachmanadi says, every ger is a son of Abraham. There's no idea in Judaism of ethnic purity. There is no idea in Judaism of ethnic purity. Everyone who comes in, and that's it says, Abraham is busy making people in Haran. What's he doing? Rashi says he was converting them. He was converting them not to Judaism. Judaism never existed in those days. He was converting them to this concept of ethical monotheism. We believe in a God, seven Noahide laws, and just be ethical and keep the seven Noahide laws. And that was the way of Abraham converting the world. And therefore, we also have to convert the world. So why did he not marry Canaan? And the answer, Shadal says, is political implications. If Abraham had married, intermarried with Canaan, how could the Jews later on throw the Canaanites out? They would be our relatives, and just like we're not allowed to fight with Moab and Ammon, because they are relatives, we would not be allowed to fight with Canaan. So if Abraham really did not want them as relatives, because that could uh, tr- trigger in the future, wouldn't be able to inherit the land. The Canaanites would have the land, and even though Abraham Avinu could have rationalized and said, you know what, it's better to get the land through marriage than through war, uh, that would have defeated the whole purpose. He, had, he would have no faith in God. He had to have faith in God. Somehow the land will come to me, despite the fact I'm not taking these, these uh, the back road, the back ways to intermarry with the people. I'm not going to take that back road. Okay, now we come to a very fascinating answer. This is the Ran Rabbi Neil Nisim, very famous uh, rabbi who wrote a commentary on the Rif in the Gemara. The Ran Rabbeinu Nisim divides between belief and character. This is very important. So why should Abraham Avidu choose a wife from his own family who are idol worshippers when he could choose a wife from the children of Ander Eshkol and Mamre who are his uh, fellow people, fellow, fellow idealists who believed in God, one God, or Eliezer, who was a convert, who believed in one God, why do you have to choose a, a wife from his own family who are idol, idol worshippers? So the answer the Ran says is there's two things. There's a belief system and there's character traits. So yeah, right, there were Canaanites who had his belief system, but they never shared his character traits. He wanted, so his own family had his own character traits, but they never shared his belief system. What's, what's more important, character traits or belief system? So the Ran says, we see from the story, character traits are much more important than belief system. A belief system can be changed very easily, but character traits cannot be changed. They're ingrained in a person. To change one habit is so hard. Right? The Gavul says it's easier to learn the whole Talmud than change one habit. So it's not easy to change one's habits. Habits are ingrained from our children, our parents and our grandparents. Our habits are ingrained into us at an early age. We see around us, we see from our families how to behave in certain situations. Chesed is learned from the family. Kindness is learned from the family. Abraham Avinu's family was a family of kindness. He said, it's better to go for a girl who has my character traits than a girl who has my belief system. She can learn the belief system, but she can't learn the character traits. Very, very important idea. Character traits are much more important than the belief system. A person can, 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 can learn theology 
but they cannot learn how to change their character. Very, very important. It's hard to change one's character, but it's going to delve into Musar and keep changing and change one's habits uh, three times, as Rambam says, at least, to change oneself a little bit. So that's very important. So he said the very character of the Canaanites was bad. They were the children of Canaan, the descendants of Ham. They're the ones who uh, uncovered uh, Noah's uh, nakedness. They had these bad character traits. They were moral. And even the best ones had these character traits inbred. And therefore, Abraham Avita says, that, yes, I don't marry my son to the Canaanites. Even the good Canaanites, the ones who believe in God, can't guarantee their character traits. Who knows what the woman's going to be like in the house? Uh, she may believe, but she doesn't do. She doesn't follow through. It's better to get a girl with good character traits my own family, I know have good character traits, even though they don't believe in God, because we can belief can be learned, whereas character traits cannot be changed. Wow, amazing, amazing idea. So the family of Abraham had good character traits, but wrong beliefs. Beliefs can be changed, not character traits. Samson of Hush says, if he married Canaan, if he married Isaac into a Canaanite, she would have been influenced by her family. Her family is right there on the doorstep. Abraham wanted a girl who would come far away from her family. This way he would influence her and her family would not influence her. So if you marry someone from the locals, the locals are going to influence the girl more than you can influence the girl. So a very important idea. This is uh, we see in Sodom. We find that uh, some of the children of Lot married Sodomites and they got stuck at Sodom. They got influenced by Sodom. So who you marry and where you marry are very, very critical who influences, who has the power of influence? And the answer is the locals are the ones that influence the most. Where you live is so important because local people influence you the most. So it's that Samson of Hush. If he married a Canaanite, uh, he married into the Canaanites, she would be influenced by her family, could be close by. A girl from far away would be influenced by him, not by her family. So very interesting. And this is the life cycle. This is what the Torah is telling us as a life cycle. Death is followed by life. You know, it's interesting. The first thing we do when we come back from the cemetery is as a mitzvah to have what's called a sudat havra'a, a meal. You come back to the cemetery, you have a meal. It's like the weirdest custom, especially amongst Fardim. It's like a, I don't know, maybe the my community was different, but the meal was, you know, it was a meal. It was a meal. The family gets together, all the relatives see each other, and it's not completely sad, put it that way. It's not as sad. It's not such a sad affair. It's, it was lively. It was lively. It was life-affirming. That's what it is, a life-affirming affair. Death is followed by life-affirming affair, eating. Jews love eating. When, even when faced with death, we eat. The neighbors have to bring the food, the egg, hard-boiled egg, the piece of bread, and then a meal. Followed by a meal, Birkat Amazon. Yes, the, the mourner has to eat. The mourner has to eat. Why? Because death is followed by life. Death has to be followed by life. It's a cycle of death and life. And that's around the reaffirmed, reaffirmed life. His son nearly died, his wife died, and he reaffirms life. So that's what we learned this week's parasha. Is this what we have to do? Our response, our response to death and dying is life. Our response is we will live. We have to live. We will continue. We will have more generations. We will get married. We will have children. We've got to further ourselves. We're going to grow. You guys are focused on death. We are focused on life. Okay, now we come to another little point. I'm going to, I'm not going to be too much. But there's something, there's a question up here. 
There is a question over here that uh, the story of Eliezer that he asked for a sign from God. He says, the first woman who will come, he, it's a very strange prayer. The rabbis say some people prayed very badly in the Torah. One of those, Eliezer, Eliezer prays to God. He said, the first woman who comes, that gives me water and feeds my camel's water. She will be the one for my master's son. What, what kind of prayer is that? His prayer was not specific. The first woman that comes, she could have been 100 years old. She could have been lame. She could have been blind. What kind of way to find a shidduch, right? You leave a blank check. It's a blank check. You ask God for a blank check. He prayed very badly. But the rabbi said, God answered very well. Hashem answered his prayer, not because of his merit, in the merit of Abraham Avinu. That's what he prays. He said, Hashem, in the merit of my master, Abraham, please answer me. And he barely finished the prayer. And Rivka walks out. This is amazing. May how Hashem loved Abraham. This is amazing. And uh, yesterday I had a, a rabbi here visiting me. And I saw how Hashem loves him. Why? As soon as he walked out of the house, his bus was waiting for him. It's like amazing, amazing. Some people, you have to wait, you know, 10 minutes for a bus. You see how Hashem sometimes, you know, he loves someone. And everything goes in order. Everything goes chick-chack. Everything follows through. Everything goes as Sadiq. Hashem protects and this we find in the story of Rivka, how Hashem found Rivka for as a marriage made in heaven. Hashem, he barely finished praying. And straight away, the girl comes. Would you like some water? Can I give you some water? Can I give you a camel some water? This is a, this is a very unusual girl. She's, this, is a, this is a girl bubbling with chesed. This is what Abraham Avinu wants. Abraham Avinu represents chesed. He's a man of kindness. He's a man of good kindness to the world. He's the man that drew people close to God. Through his kindness... He wants this girl who is epitome of chesed, and she was epitome of chesed. Which kind of girl is going to offer the stranger water and offer his camels even more? That's, you know, what a kind of burden is to lift up water from the well, pull the water out from the well and feed camels. You know how much water camels drink? I'm going to say, this woman was unusual in every single way. And then she invites him home. That's a, that. This is where do you find this? Where do you find such chesed? You find this is Abraham's family. It was in the genes, this character trait. That's why he wanted a girl for Yitzhak from the family. And that's the, another reason why later on we find Rivka sends her son Yaakov away to find a girl from the family. It's very important. The family. Why this family had good values. This family, even though they were idolaters. They had these character traits, chesed. That's what we have to find. We look for a wife or a husband, look for this quality of chesed. Hashem will follow this uh, terrible occurrences today, will answer them with life, life-affirming events, life-affirming weddings, uh, bar mitzvahs, and marriage, and uh, and children, children, Brit-Milas, and naming baby names, Hashem. This is the way, this is our response to death and dying is reaffirming life. There's rather shame chesed. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.